Well, we're going to move from the micro to the uh, macro and look at human skeletal remains, which is what I study. I work in, just up the coast a few hours in the Santa Barbara Channel area. I've worked there my entire career, although I've gone other places as well. And um, that's a, it's a particularly uh, valuable area um, from the perspective of bioarchaeology, which is what I do studying human skeletal remains, because people practice burial for the entire time they occupied the area. And so we have human skeletal remains from about 7,500 years up until this historic period, so we can really do some interesting longitudinal studies, and that's sort of where I come into the study of uh, aggression and violence is filling in that gap for about the last 10,000 years in terms of what humans have been doing prior to European contact, in, a, in this case in a hunter-gatherer, fisher society, tribal society. The Chumash who occupy, well, still do, <laughs> the, the Santa Barbara Channel area and have been there uh, for a long time, were hunter-gatherer fishers. They built um, plank canoes and plied the waters of the Santa Barbara Channel area um, to trade with people on the islands. They went up and down the coast, including down this way. Um, they traded for steatite oyas from Catalina Island and uh, traded with people from the interior. So they had this very elaborate trade network, and they fished from those tamales. They hunted sea mammals. They uh, lived in relatively large villages for hunter-gatherers, um, they had a, a scribe status, um, hereditary status. They had a form of shell bead money that was made on the islands and used in the exchange of various types of uh, food goods and various other things. They made fabulous baskets that are extraordinary and uh, extremely valuable today. So these are the people I'm talking about. And um, I've looked at many things um, about these folks, but um, I'm going to focus on the aggression and, 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 well, in particular, violence today. So the question is, um, we know that there was some evidence for violence at historic contact. Um, We have accounts of burned villages and um, head taking that was actually later in time. But the question is always, was this a product of European contact or something that happened very late? Or is there a longer history of violence? And this goes at this question of, is violence a modern problem or is it something that is longstanding? And so that, again, is where my research comes into this. And then if there is violence, what, what did it look like? Was it like uh, the uh, Donny, which is that center photo up there, um, in these kind of big skirmishes that they sometimes have? Um, they're not particularly deadly, but a lot of young men get involved in them, and it's a chance to show off, and sometimes people do get killed, and you also assess the opposite side, and that can lead to more serious things. Um, the, the little uh, diagram on the lower left-hand side was actually the, the revolt by the Chumash, so we know there was, uh, again, violence at historic contact. They had tamals. They had these ocean-going canoes. Did they actually fight with canoes? Well, a lot of these questions we really don't have answers for, but we do appeal to these modern or recent models to try and understand what was going on in the past rather than just trying to kind of make stuff up. So we go back and forth between what we know about the present or historical and what we try to infer from limited remains that we have from the archaeological record. In bioarchaeology, we're studying the human skeletal remains, and what we have is the end product of violence. We have the bodies and the injuries that they have sustained. And so we start there, and it's kind of like a forensic case, and you work backwards to try and figure out um, who was fighting, what, were the, what was the context of fighting, and so forth. And so 
um, it can be a challenge, and you bring in, of course, other other types of information as well in trying to um, in trying to do the reconstruction. But that's really what I'm doing. And in this case, this is a jolly man. He's been shot in the shoulder. He's being carried back home, probably by his kinsman. If he dies, we we might see that injury, you know, down the line. If he were buried, um, if he lives, maybe they would get that out, or maybe they would get it out if he died. So we don't even always see the injuries in the bodies, only when they happen to stay in there or somehow affect the skeleton. So I think you can imagine that we're seeing an incomplete picture, but it's what we've got. Two types of injuries that we see in the Santa Barbara Channel area are um, depressed cranial vault fractures. Um, from clubbing implements and um, injuries, those are primarily uh, healed and primarily and, and, and seem to have some type of a sublethal intent. And then injuries um, associated with uh, uh, projectile weapons where the intent seems to be to uh, kill people. So that's what I'm going to talk about. First of these are the healed depression fractures of the cranial vault. Um, these are some examples here, and you can see that they just kind of look like little divots in the skull. Um, when they were first um, uh, when they were first sustained, they would have had cracks around the margins, but the body has the capacity to heal, and so you just recognize them in that way. They occur all over the vault, but there is uh, definitely sort of a, a pattern that we see. What exactly caused these in this area? We don't know. We don't have any good weapons. Preserve, we know in, in an area slightly to the south that they did have these kind of stick clubs, but we've never really found anything, so it's not clear if there was some type of particular implement that was used or if it was more um, people you know, kind of grabbing what might, uh, what might be around. These are war clubs, but from other areas. So if you look at the distribution on the cranial vault, you see that um, they are primarily located on the front of the head. Um, to some extent, you find them on the side and less commonly on the back, at least for these healed injuries. We do occasionally see some that have not healed, um, the lethal injuries, but these are very uncommon, and they seem to occur in distinct contexts. They are almost always are associated with a projectile injury, and so generally speaking, when they're sustaining these injuries that we find as healed injuries, it seems like they don't intend to kill, so it is a different type of, of violence. So when you look by sex at um, the distribution of these injuries, it's really the men who have a lot of the injuries to the forehead and not so much the women. Women have more equal number on the front and the side and then a lesser number um, in the back. So there seems to be something distinct between what's going on with women and what's going on with men. And men have far more than women do as well. And these are just some examples of these. So they're not huge. The biggest one is on the far, far, upper far left-hand corner. Um, sometimes they're multiple, oftentimes they're a singular one, so it's, it's, it is a little bit puzzling exactly what's going on, but they clearly are in the front of the face, often they're on the left-hand side, although that doesn't really show up in here, which happens when you strike out, uh, a right-handed person strikes out with the person facing them. If you look at the distribution across age categories, um, you, what you can see is that um, up until about 10 years, we, I, I really didn't record any in, in, um, in, in, in folks uh, younger than 10 years. Then from about 10 to 18, you start to see these. You can't really determine the sex of people until they start to reach sexual maturity. So most of those people in that 10 to 18 have not had sex determined for them. Um, and uh, that little diamond just shows the value that I have for the people of that age group. You notice that it falls right on the trajectory of males, and I suspect that those are male injuries and not female injuries. The couple that I do know the sex of are male. And then um, in the 18 to 25, we really see a, a big increase, particularly in males all across the age categories. It's males have a higher frequency than females. Now, this is a death assemblage, and so you have to understand that when you look at these different age categories, these are the people who, who died at a particular age group, it's, and anyone who is in an older age group was also of that younger age. But 
Um, so, and, and these injuries heal. And so the people who have them in the older age category didn't necessarily get them in at 25 to 40. They may have gotten them at a younger age, and, um, and they just sustain them, and they're dying of other things. So what, in, in some, what this really shows is that people are getting these injuries from about 10 to 25 years old, at least men are. And then by the time they're about um, 25, most people have sustained the injuries, and there might be a few more, but for the most part, that's the age at which they've gotten them quite young, especially men. Women have far less of them. And the interesting thing about that greater than 40 for women is that, again, because these accrue, um, the lower frequency in this older age group suggests that if you manage to stay out of those types of activities where you're getting injuries, you live longer. Not a stunning, uh, <laughs> stunning uh, discovery. I just wanted to pull this in really quickly uh, I, I, to show you that we are, uh, when you do what I do, you're constantly going between clinical literature and other types of literature to try and understand things. This was a study I just pulled off the web a couple days ago. Just to, it was a study of non-fatal head injury in Scottish youth and. Not surprisingly, once again, uh, young men have uh, more than uh, young women. More young women's rates are, are, are more even. Male rates are high from 15 to uh, 24 years old, and then they start to decline. So it's actually a very similar sort of thing in a very uh, different context, um, I think, showing that, that for, at least from my perspective, there are such commonalities, whether you're looking you know, 2,000 years ago or you're looking uh, today. So what's going on? Well, Phil Walker and I have invoked the Yanomamo club fights as a possible model for what we see in these uh, men in uh, the Chumash society, in ancient Chumash society. Among the Yanomamo, uh, all, all guys have these long uh, clubs, and they use them to resolve disputes when uh, relationships uh, are important and you don't want something to escalate to uh, death because that can, can start a feuding cycle and so forth. And at least traditionally, they were fairly common. You might have visitors over in your village, and something happens, and you try to resolve something by hitting each other on the head. It's a chance to show that you're brave, and the scars are things that people are proud of. This was actually a fight between a father and a son, so it shows you that these things happen, can, can happen in quite intimate contexts, although I don't know how common that one is. And then there's the, the scars down in the lower left-hand side of a man who's been involved in a, lo- a number of uh, club fights over the course of his life. Now, the Anamamo practice cremation, and so I don't know what, how, much, how often those scars actually impact the skull, and so it's hard to say how this might be a model for the Chumash and how, you know, having one or two scars, could that really be the result of this type of a thing? But in any event, maybe something like this. If you look across time, they occur in all time periods. Um, this is a very crude kind of uh, temporal uh, chart, but... Um, uh, what you can see is that men have more than women in all time periods, but they particularly peak right in the middle there with that 33.3% for males in a period we call the early middle period. And that increase really does suggest that something becomes more institutionalized at that time. Their population is growing. People are certainly fairly sedentary fairly early on in this area, so we may see uh, more disputes uh, happening and people attempting to resolve them in this sublethal way. And this is interesting because in the next time period, there's going to be a shift and lethal violence is really going to going to peak. So projectile injuries are injuries uh, caused by spears, um, darts, arrow points, usually stone in this area. They um, sometimes embed in bone. Uh, sometimes you find rec- you have excavation records describing points in the body, and um, I tend to include them all when I'm trying to reconstruct this more lethal form of violence. If you look at the distribution of these injuries um, in, the, in the body, 
Um, they are most common in the thoracic cavity and in the abdominal cavity, also some in the head and neck, and I don't find too many in the, um, in the upper limbs or um, lower limbs. And keeping in mind that this is a death assemblage, that's probably not um, entirely um, surprising um, to have this focus on thoracic and abdominal. There was a, a, a paper written in the 1800s by a surgeon who treated people in the American Indian Wars, and recorded uh, the most lethal injuries as being those to the thorax and the abdomen. And that's, again, I think that's kind of self-evident because that's where, the, uh, that's where the organs are. And we, in a death assemblage, you're looking at people who died of things, and most of these injuries are not healed. So um, all this is, is not surprising, but it does make it a little more challenging in terms of trying to understand everybody who might have been injured because we have a bias towards those who did not uh, survive their injuries. So if you look at the, um, at the uh, distribution of these injuries across um, different age uh, categories, um, there aren't any injuries up until about 10 years of age, so children seem to have been uh, protected from this type of violence. From 10 to 18, you start to see some injuries, but this isn't in all time periods. This is really only in um, a, a certain time period that we start to see people injured in that age category. And then beginning in about 18 to 25, there's a real... Um, peak in injuries, um, particularly, again, in young men. Um, now, again, this is a death assemblage, so this isn't an assessment of risk. This is only an assessment of what, how many people died in each age category because the people who are in older age categories, they also were 18 to 25, but they went on to live other things. It's a little complicated when you're trying to interpret skeletal data because it's not a living population. It's a death assemblage, and so you have to look at it differently, and it's easy to make uh, mistakes in your interpretations. But in any event, as a cause of death, it was an important one for 18 to 25-year-olds and probably younger, 10 to 18, probably young men, given that most of these injuries are young men. And then um, by the time you get to 25 to 40, some of those injuries at least are healed and probably were, uh, uh, were sustained when they were younger in the 18 to 25, so that would probably add some additional people. So I guess my point here is that the, the age of, of injuries, probably 18 to 25, maybe 30, uh, is the primary age for, for men. Women um, do not have as many injuries and they don't have uh, quite that same pattern. They seem to be a little bit less protected, perhaps, as they get older, and that might imply that there are other types of, of violence going on um, there. And I just show this slide once again. When you're doing these kind of studies, you want to go between, you want to keep yourself um, calibrated onto what's actually going on and be realistic. And when you do a search, which I did just the other day, um, and looking at, uh, at, at violence, male violence, um, you, you pick up the same kind of images. People maybe look a slightly different, but um, it's young men in all these different contexts Papua New Guinea, or uh, Pakistan, or the Ukraine, or Rwanda, or Sudan. And so it's not really different what I'm seeing in the Santa Barbara Channel area. And again, I think that's important because sometimes we might think that things are really different in the past or that something that's going on now isn't reflective of a broader sort of history. And what I find is that the patterns are, um, are quite similar. If you look across time, um, again, you can see that um, men have... Um, most of the injuries um, and have higher levels of injuries in all time periods. And it looks as though in many time periods there weren't very many um, injuries, at least relative to one time period. But I think it's important to remember that those, that's like 3% of men. That's 3 out of 100, or 4.9 is 5 out of 100. So even at those seemingly low levels, this is 
Well, it's, it's, a, it's a significant thing that's going on. I, I wouldn't say that it's the main thing that, that people are, are, are focusing on or that it's the primary thing that's going on in people's life, but it seems to have, be a component of, of, of what's going on throughout this prehistoric sequence of 7,500 years. But there is a really interesting um, peak uh, that happens about 700 to 1300 AD, and that's just, this is a period that I've gotten really interested in. It's not that male violence, you know, anything shifts there. There's still males have more than females, but there's a lot more altogether. And as male violence goes up, female violence goes up too. And uh, this is something, another sort of uh, uh, aspect that I've been really interested in is what are the contexts in which violence occurs, as we can see in a longitudinal record, and this is actually the value of the archaeological record, is that we do have this longitudinal perspective. And um, what, what one thing that seems to be occurring, well, okay, there's a number of things. One thing is population's getting bigger. The population's getting more sedentary. They seem to be getting more territorial, according to work by uh, Doug Kennett. But the other thing that's going on seems to be climate. And there's pretty good climatic reconstructions for California, and um, one not far from uh, the area that I work in, and they suggest that there were a couple of pretty severe droughts. It's actually, this whole time period is called the medieval climatic anomaly. It was a period of climatic warming. It was a period of unstable climatic conditions, which we may hear about later from Carol Ember, um, as being something that is, um, uh, can um, be associated with um, warfare. And then there were a couple of um, very severe droughts and uh, um, so if you look at the chart, the um, yellow dots are, uh, show you the projectile violence, which is the lethal violence, and they really seem to peak um, during that period, actually fa- fairly strongly correlated with these really severe droughts. And so um, I think this is pretty strong evidence that in terms of context for violence, when people are uh, competing, probably in this case for well-watered areas, this is Southern California, as I'm sure you all know, water is a crucial resource and it's something that people are, I know, I know this is on your mind now, but this isn't the first time that this has happened. And you know, a thousand years ago or 800 years ago it happened and it had some pretty, uh, pretty dire consequences as people, I think, fought for these few well-watered uh, places that um, existed on the landscape. So. Just in sum, I think what we can take away from these archaeological data is um, that we see the same kinds of patterning in both sublethal and lethal violence that you see today. It's, it's, it's men, it's young men, and the fact that everywhere you look in the past and in the present, uh, you see the same kind of patterning does, sele- does suggest um, evolutionary underpinnings of a sort. But there is more to the explanation than that, and I think that there, there's also conditions under which you're going to see these kind of behaviors come out. And in the Santa Barbara Channel area, that behavior is manifested in, in times of drought when water resources are scarce and food resources are scarce. And so these are just two elements of the equation of understanding warfare that um, someone like me can contribute to in uh, studying human skeletal remains from archaeological sites. Thank you.